Now let us turn together to the New Testament scriptures as we read this morning in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. You will recall that we began to look at this passage two Sunday mornings ago, and we are returning to it for this second occasion today to consider the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the great Greek city of Corinth. Chapter 18 of the book of Acts, verses 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew, Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, Settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern. Whatever. Thus reads for us the living and abiding word of God. Now, on these Sunday mornings, as many of you are aware, we have been studying the great ministry of the Apostle Paul through the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and we have come almost to the point of the end of his second great missionary journey. You remember that there scarcely ever has been in the annals of the Christian Church's history such a man as this, far-traveled, greatly experienced in the work of Christ and endued with a truly apostolic authority 
as he proclaimed among the nations the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And two Sunday mornings ago, we saw him arriving in the great city of Corinth, in the southern regions of Greece. We considered on that occasion two weeks ago not the place or the ministry of the great apostle in that city, but the apostle himself, who you remember had come into this city in weakness and fear and much trembling, as he tells us himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and following. And so we considered two weeks ago the apostle's condition and the reasons for that condition of weakness and fear and much trembling, so uncharacteristic of this man who was a lion heart for Christ. And we considered, too, the Lord's wonderful remedy that strengthened and renewed and re-equipped this great man of God for his significant service in that great and pagan city of Corinth. Now today, we need to take a further look at the apostle's ministry as opposed to his person in this great city. And you remember that it was a very significant change for him to come from Athens, where he had been just previously, into the city of Corinth, situated as it was on a narrow isthmus or neck of land with a seaport to its east and a seaport to its west, so that all the trade of the Orient flowed through the marketplaces and the streets of Corinth, taken in at the eastern port of Cenchrea and sent out very often to the western ports of Rome and Italy at the western side of Corinth, a great, busy metropolis of a city. And it was a great change for Paul to move here. It was like moving in my own country from Oxford, a university city, to London, a great trading metropolis. And I suppose in some senses here in North America, like moving from Boston, a rather intellectual city, to New York, a very busy industrial city of great commerce and activity. It was as though Paul moved from the intellectual center of the ancient world in Athens to the commercial center of the ancient world in Corinth. From the proud Athenians who exalted in their knowledge and philosophy into the corrupt paganism of this great metropolis of Corinth. As though he moved from a city of ancient fame whose roots were in antiquity into a city you remember, that had been rebuilt only recently by Julius Caesar and was barely 100 years old into a city that was very busy and full of traffic from one that was, like many university cities, seclusive and quiet into a city that was immensely wealthy with trade, as I say, flowing through it like a great river. And the apostle realized at once that if merchandise of every kind could pass through this city onto the ports of its destination, so could the precious seed of the gospel of God's word be scattered 
over many lands if, by God's grace, a strong church might first be established in that great and pagan city of Corinth. Now, it was notorious for its immorality and its drunkenness. I reminded you two weeks ago that to play the Corinthian in the ancient Greek world meant to be someone of the lowest of loose morals. And in that city with its temple of Aphrodite, the Romans called her Venus, and the similar temple of Apollo, her male counterpart, there were all kinds of consecrated prostitutes and sodomites, homosexuals who freely traded their favors among the many thousands of sailors who thronged into the busy streets of Corinth so that that city we would describe today was the vanity fair of the Roman Empire, a city that was a veritable Gomorrah. Now into this place, as I say, the great apostle came. And if a strong church was to be established, how by God's grace was he to do it? And you know the remarkable thing about these 17 verses that we read together this morning is that Luke describes for us the very surprising and challenging way in which the apostle was enabled to do just that, to plant in the midst of this great city one of the biggest and in some ways the strongest of New Testament churches in spite of its many problems and difficulties that we read about in the Corinthian correspondence. And he did it, you notice with me, first by following the trade and secondly by furthering the truth and thirdly by facing the tribunal. Now, I want you, as time permits, to follow through this threefold division of these 17 verses with me this morning. And first of all, you notice that in verses 1 through 4 of the passage, as you have your Bible open in front of you, the apostle began to plant one of the strongest churches of the New Testament times by simply following the trade. Now, when you consider the outcome eventually of his labors in Corinth, that is to say a strong church and two of the longest and in some ways most important letters in the whole of the New Testament, when you consider that final outcome and you read verses 1 to 4, nothing surely is more remarkable than the outcome contrasted with the way in which Paul began his ministry. How did he begin that ministry? Well, you remember that he entered the city, as we saw two weeks ago, in weakness and fear and much trembling. And whatever may have been at the root of that condition, he was a man whose morale, as we saw, was considerably weakened. He may even have been a man, as one of the commentators suggests, who was physically and bodily weak, perhaps from an attack of Asiatic malaria. It's very likely that that was the thorn in the flesh 
that Paul refers to in his Corinthian epistles. But he arrived there as a man almost demoralized. And you don't read, first of all, about him going in to the synagogue and preaching the glorious gospel of Christ or evangelizing among the pagans of Corinth. What do you read of him doing? Following the trade. That's how this great mission began. In the providence of God, he meets up with a couple who are described in these verses as we saw. Aquila and Priscilla driven out of Rome by an outbreak of anti-Semitism that was so frequent even then in the ancient Roman Empire. And he found them to be practicing the same trade that he had learned as a young man because every rabbi in those times was required to learn a trade. And with them he set up house and home and they became his firm and lifelong friends, as I reminded you. But that is how a life-changing ministry began in one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. Quietly, unostentatiously, as he followed the trade that he had learned as a boy. And if you had said to any of the leading citizens in Corinth in those days, the most important man in this whole city is a little Jew working in a back street of Corinth, sewing rough goat's hair together to make tents, he would have laughed you to scorn. Yet it was true. Now, as you look at this, beloved, there are three lessons quickly that this surely teaches us in verses 1 through 4. And the first of them stands out from the page, I think. But true zeal for God can be patiently silent as needed. Here is the great apostle, the much-traveled missionary, the fervent proclaimer of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, the one who was later to write of his ministry in Corinth. Our message was not with words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And what is he doing? Sewing rough goat's hair cloth into tents in some poor back street of this great metropolis of Corinth. And make no mistake, Luke's emphasis is deliberately upon this in verses 1 to 4. We don't read anything of his public ministry until the fourth and fifth verses as though Luke is conveying to us the truth that where necessary, true zeal for God can be patiently silent when God calls and appoints for that to be done. What I'm saying to you is sowing rough goat's hair together may be as truly serving Christ as those who are called publicly to preach the gospel. And the Lord knew that Paul at this time needed that respite and that renewal. And what a dignity, beloved, it puts upon humble labor. You may think, ah, my work as an office clerk or as a typist to some important person in industry or wherever, this is not serving Christ. 
But, beloved, it is serving Christ. If you are truly dedicated to him and God has put you in that place at that time, there is a purpose in it. Now, do you notice the second lesson is that weekday work and Sabbath consecration help each other. They really do. You see, we're living in days, I'm afraid, when many of the people of God despise the trade and the calling that God has given them. And yet we see this apostle, this faithful ambassador for Christ, this lion heart of a man, presently because of his weakness and his great need, being ministered to by the Lord as he's providentially guided to take lodgings with a couple that were evidently a Christian couple. Aquila and Priscilla, and working there day by day, drawn to them by their fellowship of race and religion, and above all, by their knowledge of Christ. And you see him there with the weekday work, mingling with the Sabbath consecration as he goes in to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and preaches Christ, and you see the weekday work and the Sabbath consecration helping each other. Because work, beloved, well done, makes the day of sacred rest and service sweet to the Christian. And it was so for the apostle. And the sacred day of rest gives renewed vigor and energy for the ministry of work to which God has called you. And so should it ever be so. And when you think of it, how strange that the movement that was to give to the city of Corinth a greater fame than all her games and architecture and eloquence and trade, this emanated from a poor shop in a Jewish ghetto. That's where it started, where a handful of fugitive Jews wrought out their trade and in the midst of their toils spoke together of the glories of Jesus of Nazareth and encouraged one another. They were weak with him, but they were also destined to live and reign with him as the gospel was gathering strength in preparation for a great outreach to the Corinthian pagans around them. And though in apparent weakness they were living really, you know, in the power of God. Now isn't that significant? But the weekday work and the Sabbath rest and service help each other. That's what it should be, beloved, with you. And the third lesson is this, that tent-making ministries may indeed in certain circumstances be used of the Lord. Now, it's very obvious, I'm sure, to you who know the Scriptures and particularly the Corinthian epistles or letters that Paul thoroughly and fully believed in his right to be supported in the work of the gospel by Christians. And he wrote practically a whole chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 to vindicate that right of the Christian worker to be supported in his labor. But often you read in the Apostles' missionary journeys that while he received always with gratitude and thankfulness the contributions for his support, on a number of occasions 
he was found in a tent-making ministry, supporting not only himself, but those of his companions with him who were fellow laborers in the gospel. Why? Well, certainly to show that he was not in it for the money. And God have mercy upon that poor servant of Christ who is called publicly to the preaching of the gospel, who is in it for the money. And if the preacher would ever be faithful to his Lord and useful to his people, he must be free from any taint of suspicion as to money. Has not this been the public downfall and scandal in our own day even of some of those men, the television evangelists, who proclaimed the gospel free of charge and yet made it into a money-making racket as they were discovered in their sin and exposed. But Paul was very anxious, you see, in this situation, knowing the Corinthians and their way of thinking, that when he was present among them and in need, as he says in 2 Corinthians 9, he was not a burden to any of them, that he could make the gospel indeed, in every sense, free of charge to them. Now, how eminently practical and heavenly-minded and down-to-earth at the same time was this mighty apostle to the Gentiles. And that example certainly has some bearing upon the church's ministry today, and in certain circumstances it is still lawful and even desirable but the gospel should be supported by a tent-making ministry. Now let me say also that Paul was still living by faith. You know, we live in a strange day nowadays when the so-called faith missions, and there are many of them, mostly parachurch organizations, hold it up as a great and desirable thing for Christians to live by faith, for the missionaries to live by faith. And I want to say to you that even when the apostle was working with his own hands, he was living by faith every moment of the day. And the term is much abused and misused today in so-called faith missions. You can live by faith just as much when you are living on an income because we all as Christians, beloved, live, I trust, by faith and depend every moment, whether we are earning an income or directly relying upon the Lord for our support, we are living by faith in Christ that justifies us and that keeps us always in the way. Now this is how the mission began, following the trade, true zeal, that can be patiently silent. The weekday work strengthened by the Sabbath worship and a tent-making ministry authorized in the scriptures themselves. But do you notice quickly there is a second stage to this apostle's ministry in Corinth as he furthers the truth in verses 4 through 11 as he begins to argue in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuades both Jews and Gentiles until the opposition is so great against this ministry that he is forced out of the synagogue's doors. 
And so with the coming of Silas and Timothy from Macedonia, this new stage of his ministry begins. And we know from the letter to the Philippians and also from his letter to the Thessalonians that was written, I believe, from Corinth, that when they came and joined him from the other cities of Thessalonica and Berea, they brought not only news of the converts standing firm, but also a monetary gift. And this now enabled Paul, as we see in these verses, to continue full-time in the ministry. No longer a tent-making ministry, evidently, but one that was fully supported through those gifts that had sacrificially been given by his friends in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and brought to him by Silas and Timothy. Now, this is the question, beloved, as you look at these verses. It's an important one. Who were the most difficult people to reach in Corinth? The Gentiles, who lived in sins and debauchery, or the religious Jews, with all the advantage of their knowledge of Scripture and the prophecies of the coming Messiah, who were the most difficult to reach? And Luke supplies the answer. And there are just several things. Let me touch on them. The gospel, first of all, can be rejected by the most promising of recipients, namely the Jews. Look at these verses. Here is Paul in verse 5. Pressed in the Spirit is an alternate translation of that verse. Constrained by the Word of God. Completely engrossed in preaching. As in the NIV translation. Devoting himself now exclusively to preaching. No longer laboring with his hands. Pressed in the Spirit to testify with all his strength and strive with all his ability to convince the Jews that Jesus is their promised Messiah. And that was the head of all the offense of Paul's message. The one thing that they did not want to receive or hear or believe, that Jesus is the Christ and him crucified. You remember how Paul put it in his Corinthian letter, when I came among you, I determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is Paul. And here are the Jews in a determined opposition, verse 6, opposing and reviling the very servant of God who bore to them the precious offer of the gospel of God's grace and all his most zealous efforts are in the end unavailing. Before a people, I remind you, so favored and blessed with the promises and the prophecies and the covenants and the sacrifices and the oracles of God. But he has faced, the apostle is, with a determined, intractable opposition. Now, isn't it incredible that so often, even in the work of the gospel today, the most promising recipients of God's grace are often the most difficult to reach. And the servant of God with tears in his eyes has to do what Paul did in that famous and symbolic act of shaking the dust off his very garments in testimony to them 
But their guilt was their own and not his. But they were committing spiritual suicide. And it is a solemn truth, beloved, that sometimes the most favored people under gospel ministry today are the most resistant to the message of God's word, drawn into their consciences in the power of the Holy Spirit. But here is the second thing. The gospel can also flourish in the most unlikely places. Who were the responsive ones in this ministry amid all the immorality and paganism of Corinth in the midst of this wicked and fornicating city? The most unlikely ones. Never did a place more need the gospel of sanctification than this moral sewer that was Corinth. But surely never did a place seem more hard to reach by the gospel. The moral depravity of the Corinthians is reflected very often by Paul in his letters. In 1 Corinthians 5, he speaks of someone who had married his own mother and was having sexual relationships with her, something that would have scandalized even some of the pagans in Corinth. In chapter 6, he speaks of fornicators and adulterers and idolaters and homosexuals. In chapter 10, he speaks of the example of the Israelites in their idolatry and immorality, clearly applying it to the people of Corinth. And so you can go on and on. And isn't it incredible that those whom he calls immoral and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and thieves and drunkards and revilers, he's able to say of them, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. What a testimony. But the gospel can flourish in the most unlikely of places so that the great apostle labored there for one whole year and one half year with success crowning his labors and the great encouragement of seeing the church of God, as someone has said, springing up like a spring flower out of the filthy mud of the Corinthian capital. Now isn't that a great encouragement, my dear friends, to those of us whose lot is cast in evil times and in evil places? You say there can never be any fruit for me in this office where I work, with all their foul language filling my ears. But this is not what the Scripture says. And I would encourage you, wherever you are, how evil and dark the place may be, howsoever, to keep on keeping on. Now, do you notice the third lesson? But God can so order things that when one door shuts, another opens. Isn't it remarkable? Look at verses 7 and 8. The door of the synagogue slams shut. And what does the Lord do, beloved? He opens another door, right next door to the synagogue where Paul has been driven out. 
in the home, evidently, of a godly Gentile who was one of the God-fearers on the fringe of the Jewish synagogue whose heart the Lord had opened. And he took Paul in. And it is an altogether surprising turn of events because before we go on very far, we realize that one of the early converts was no less than Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, converted to Christ. You see, the seed that Paul had faithfully sown in the midst of this opposition to the gospel in the synagogue is bearing fruit. Very often, you know, we fail to give enough credit to the power of God's word in difficult and evil situations. Here was a man who was converted as a result of Paul's faithfulness and persistence in the synagogue and is now baptized by the apostle himself, a very unusual occurrence, as he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, do you see in summary that the Lord gave to him the joy of spiritual success. The exact measure of it we don't know, but evidently it was very considerable because the church in Corinth became of such importance that Paul paid it great attention and wrote two long letters, the longest in the New Testament, to this church in Corinth and later was to spend much of his strength in its growth and in its encouragement. Here then is Paul testifying to the truth. Now as I draw to a close, he also was called to face the tribunal in verses 12 through 17. And you notice that at this point the apostle was greatly discouraged. That's the reason why the Lord gave him the vision there in verses 9 and following. In spite of success that had begun to attend his ministry by this time, he was afraid that the implacable opposition of the Jews would again lead to his being banished and thrown out of yet another city with the work still uncompleted. And he found that he needed the kind of encouragement that not even Aquila and Priscilla could provide for him. Not even the success of his labors among the Gentiles in the house of Titius Justus. And we need to remember, beloved, that being a Christian does not release us from the laws which govern our physical and mental well-being. There are times when we are down spiritually and sometimes with very good reason. And even our Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry was subject to these laws, as you see him on occasion, greatly discouraged and even struggling spiritually, as he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's no surprise then that Paul at Corinth felt the strain of all that he had gone through, and he was a weak and shaken man, and never nearer, it seems, to giving up. But the Lord so graciously answered him, the Lord who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in the vision of the night, do you notice, he said to him, do not be afraid, verse 8, but speak and do not be silent. For what? No man will set on you to hurt you. 
Now, how reassuring, how comforting, how uplifting for the tried servant of God. But notice, it is a promise, not that he will not be attacked. Not that life will not be difficult. Not that there will be no persecution of him. But the promise is that he will not be hurt. His blood will not be spilled. His life will not be endangered. And you notice as he faces the tribunal, that glorious promise is wonderfully fulfilled. Here come the unbelieving Jews, determined they will put an end to this successful apostolic ministry in Corinth. They drag him before the Roman procurator, Gallio, the brother of Seneca, the philosopher, a man known for his fairness and justice as many of the Roman rulers were not. And their charge was that Paul was propagating an illegal religion, a religio illicita. Now, the Jewish religion was protected, and they endeavored to make out the case that Paul's version of it did not come under the protection of the Roman law. And you see the wisdom of this man, Gallio. You see the sovereign hand of God over his mind and over his actions. He was all that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, was not fair and just in his thinking and in his acting. And he saw at once that what they were about, these Jews, was a dispute about religion, and it did not come in under the purview of the criminal courts at all. And so he dismissed them summarily from his presence. And the mob, you read, In verse 17, taking their cue by this summary dismissal, vented their dislike of the Jews by beating Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, evidently, who had succeeded Crispus in an outbreak again of Roman, of anti-Semitism that was so near the surface in the Roman world. But they, in verse 17, are the bystanders, the mob. And Gallio is careless about it all. Now, do you see what I'm saying to you as I finish this morning? The point of all this is the fulfillment of God's promise to his servant. I will protect you, he says. I have many people in this city. Therefore, do not be afraid, but speak forth the word of truth. And there is no promise given to us similarly that says we will avoid trouble and persecution and that we will not sustain loss, but there is a glorious promise that our God is sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The shorter catechism again, question 26. God is able to turn the tables on his enemies when all might appear to be lost. His purpose prevails not theirs. And isn't that wonderful? And we know from the annals of the times that that judgment of Gallio was effective in securing for the Christian church for the next ten years immunity from persecution in the Roman courts. Because being a proconsul, his judgment in this case 
was the precedent under which other governors and Roman rulers were bound to act. And from it came the liberty for the Christian preacher to proclaim the gospel without fear of persecution from Rome. The sovereignty of God as Paul faced the Roman tribunal. Well then, in conclusion, following the trade, furthering the truth, facing the tribunal, thus the glorious gospel came to Corinth. And in this vanity fair of the Roman Empire, in this city that was next door to Sodom and Gomorrah, we read in the Corinthian correspondence of the church of God that is in Corinth. What a testimony to the grace and power of the Lord Jesus. What an encouragement to you and to me as we labor in similarly difficult and evil times. The knowledge that by following the trade and furthering the truth and facing as necessary the tribunal, our sovereign God will be triumphant in the purpose that he has set forth. I have many people in this city. Therefore, do not be afraid. Is that grace of God seen in your life today? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may these words encourage us and instruct us in those things that we so greatly need to know in these days of discouragement. And may that same risen Lord, who is the King of his church, so strengthen us in his service that we may de indeed in our weakness reign with him in life. For Jesus' sake, amen.